This recording is a service of the Allen County Public Library's audio reading service. It is specifically designed for and directed to people who have visual, physical, learning, or language challenges to reading traditional printed materials. Welcome to The Atlantic, the historic magazine that offers a unique editorial view on the arts, politics, and current events. Catch up on the important news happening in the world around you. The Atlantic, found only here on your audio reading service. Welcome. This is The Atlantic, and I'm your reader, Susan, with the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Today, I will be reading from the January-February issue of The Atlantic. This particular issue has been divided into two sections. Uh, The first half is If Trump Wins, and a series of individual articles are included in this section. The first one I will read today is David Frum on autocracy. The next Trump presidency will be worse. The Revenge Presidency by David Frum. For all its marvelous creativity, the human imagination often fails when turned to the future. It is blunted, perhaps, by a craving for the familiar. We all appreciate that the past includes many moments of severe instability, crises, even radical revolutionary upheaval. We know that such things happened years or decades or centuries ago. We cannot believe that they might happen tomorrow. When Donald Trump is a subject, imagination falters further. Trump operates so far outside the normal bounds of human behavior, never mind normal political behavior, that it is difficult to accept what he may actually do, even when he declares his intentions openly. What's more, we have experienced one Trump presidency already. We can take false comfort from that previous experience. We've lived through it once. American democracy survived. Maybe the danger is less than feared. In his first turn, Trump's corruption and brutality were mitigated by his ignorance and laziness. In a second, Trump would arrive with a much better understanding of the system's vulnerabilities, more willing enablers in tow, and a much more focused agenda of retaliation against his adversaries and impunity for himself. When people wonder what another Trump term might hold, their minds underestimate the chaos that would lie ahead. By Election Day 2024, Donald Trump will be in the thick of multiple criminal trials. It's not impossible that he may already have been convicted in at least one of them. If he wins the election, Trump will commit the first crime of his second term at noon on Inauguration Day. His oath to defend the Constitution of the United States will be a perjury. A second Trump term would instantly plunge the country into a constitutional crisis more terrible than anything seen since the Civil War. Even in the turmoil of the 1960s, even during the Great Depression, the country had a functional government with the president at its head. But the government cannot function with an indicted or convicted criminal as its head. The president would be an outlaw or on his way to becoming an outlaw. For his own survival, he would have to destroy the rule of law. From Trump himself and the people around him, we have a fair idea of a second Trump administration's immediate priorities. Stop all federal and state cases against Trump, criminal and civil. 
pardon and protect those who tried to overturn the 2020 election on Trump's behalf, send the Department of Justice into action against Trump adversaries and critics, end the independence of the civil service and fire federal officials who refuse to carry out Trump's command. And if these lawless actions ignite protests in American cities, order the military to crush them. A restored Trump would lead the United States into a landscape of unthinkable scenarios. Will the Senate confirm Trump nominees who were chosen because of their willingness to help the president lead a coup against the U.S. government? Will the staff of the Justice Department resign? Will people march in the streets? Will the military obey or refuse orders to suppress demonstrations? The existing constitutional system has no room for the subversive legal maneuvers of a criminal-in-chief. If a president can pardon himself for federal crimes, as Trump would likely try to do, then he could write his pardon in advance and shoot visitors to the White House. For that matter, the vice president could murder the president in the the Oval Office and then immediately pardon herself. If a president can order the attorney general to stop a federal case against him, as Trump would surely do, then obstruction of justice becomes a normal prerogative of the presidency. If Trump can be president, then the United States owes a huge retrospective apology to Richard Nixon. Under the rules of a second Trump presidency, Nixon would have been well within his rights to order the Department of Justice to stop investigating Watergate and then pardon himself and all the burglars for the break-in and the cover-up. After Trump was elected in 2016, he was quickly surrounded by prominent and influential people who recognized that he was a lawless menace. They found ways to restrain a man they regarded as, to quote the reported words of Trump's first secretary of state, an effing moron, and to quote his second chief of staff, the most flawed person I've ever met in my life, whose dishonesty is just astounding. But there would be no Rex Tillerson in a second Trump term, no John Kelly, no Jeff Sessions, who as attorney general recused himself from the investigation into the president's connections to Russia, leading to the appointment of an independent special counsel. Since 2021, Trump's skeptical Republicans have been pushed out of politics. Representatives Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger forfeited their seats in the House for defending election integrity. Representative Tom Emmer withdrew his bid for House Speaker over the same offense. The Republican Senate caucus is less hospitable to Trump-style authoritarianism, but notice that the younger and newer Republican senators, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, J.D. Vance, tend to support Trump's schemes, while his opponents in the Senate belong to the outgoing generation. Trump's leading rivals for the 2024 nomination seldom dare criticize his abuse of power. Most of the people who would staff a second Trump term would be servile tools who have absorbed the brutal realities of contemporary republicanism. Defend democracy. Forfeit your career. Already an array of technically competent opportunists has assembled itself from within right-wing think tanks and elsewhere and has begun to plan out exactly how to dismantle the institutional safeguards against Trump's corrupt and vengeful impulses. 
Trump's likely second-term advisors have made clear that they would share his agenda of legal impunity and the use of law enforcement against his perceived opponents, not only the Biden family, but Trump's own former attorney general and the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff. If Trump wins the presidency again, the whole world will become a theater for his politics of revenge and reward. Ukraine will be abandoned to Vladimir Putin. Saudi Arabia will collect its dividends for its investments in the Trump family. First term Trump told aides that he wanted to withdraw from NATO. Second term Trump would choose aides who would not talk him out of it. Other partners, too, would have to adjust to the authoritarianism and corruption of a second Trump term. Liberals in Israel and India would find themselves isolated in the, as the U.S. turned toward reaction and authoritarianism at home. East Asian democracies would have to adjust to Trump's protectionism and trade wars. Mexico's anti-democratic Marina Party would have to scope to snuff out free institutions provided that it, supported, that it suppressed migration flows to the United States. Anyway, the United States would be too paralyzed by troubles at home to help friends abroad. If Trump is elected, it very likely won't be with a majority of the popular vote. Imagine the scenario. Trump has won the Electoral College with 46% of the vote because third-party candidates funded by Republican donors successfully splintered the anti-Trump coalition. Having failed to win the popular vote in each of the past three elections, Trump has become president for the second time. On that thin basis, his supporters would try to execute his schemes of personal impunity and political vengeance. In this scenario, Trump opponents would have to face a harsh reality. The U.S. electoral system has privileged a strategically located minority, led by a law-breaking president, over the Democratic majority. One side outvoted the other. The outvoted, nonetheless, won the power to govern. The outvoted would happily justify the twist of events in their favor. We are a republic, not a democracy, many said in 2016. Since that time, the outvoted have become more outspoken against democracy. As Senator Mike Lee tweeted a month before the 2020 election, democracy isn't the objective. So long as minority rule seems an occasional or accidental result, the majority might go along. But once aware that the minority intends to engineer its power to last forever and to use it to subvert the larger legal and constitutional system, the majority may cease to be so accepting. One outcome of a second Trump term may be an American version of the massive demonstrations that filled Tel Aviv streets in 2023, when Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu tried to remake Israel's court system. And what might follow that? In 2020, Trump's advisors speculated about the possibility of using the army to crush protest against Trump's plans to overturn that year's elections. Now those in Trump's circle are apparently thinking further ahead. Some reportedly went to prepare in advance to use the Insurrection Act to convert the military into a tool of Trump's authoritarian project. It's an astonishing possibility. But everyone else is thinking about it, so some everyone else must, including the senior command of the U.S. military. 
If a president can summon an investigation of his opponents or summon the military to put down protest, then suddenly our society would no longer be free. There would be no more law, only legalized persecution of political opponents. It has always been Trump's supreme political wish to wield both the law and institutional violence as personal weapons of power, a wish that many in his party now seem determined to help him achieve. That grim negative ideal is the core ballot question in 2024. If Trump is defeated, the United States can proceed in its familiar, imperfect way to deal with the many big problems of our time. The wars in the Middle East and Ukraine, climate change, educational standards and equal opportunity, economic growth and individual living standards, and so on. Stopping Trump would not represent progress on any of these agenda items. But stopping Trump would preserve the possibility of progress by keeping alive the constitutional democratic structure of the United States. A second Trump presidency, however, is the kind of shock that would overwhelm all other issues. It would mark the turn onto a dark path, one of these rips between before and after that a society can never reverse. Even if the harm is contained, it can never be fully undone, as the harm of January 6, 2021 can never be undone. The long tradition of peaceful transitions of power was broken that day, and even though the attempt to stop the transition by violence was defeated, the violence itself was not expunged. The schemes and plots of a second Trump term may be defeated, too, yet every future would-be dictator will know. A president can attempt a coup and, if stopped, still return to office to try again. As we now understand from memoirs and on-the-record comments, many of Trump's own cabinet appointees and senior staff were horrified by the president they served. The leaders of his own party in Congress feared and hated him. The GOP's deepest-pocketed donors have worked for three years to nominate somebody, anybody else. Yet even so, Trump's co-partisans are converging upon him. They are convincing themselves that something can justify forgiving Trump's first attempted coup and enabling a second. Taxes, border control, stupid comments by woke college students. For democracy to continue, however, the democratic system itself must be the supreme commitment of all major participants. Rules must matter more than our outcomes. If not, the system careens toward breakdown, as it is careening now. When Benjamin Franklin famously said of the then-new Constitution, a republic, if you can keep it, he was not suggesting that the republic might be misplaced absentmindedly. He foresaw that ambitious, ruthless characters would arise to try to break the republic and that weak, venal characters might assist them. Americans have faced Franklin's challenge since 2016 in a story that has so far had some villains, many heroes, and just enough good luck to tip the balance. It would be dangerous to continue to count on luck to do the job. David Frum is a staff writer at The Atlantic and the author of 10 books, including most recently, Trumpocalypse, Restoring America's Democracy. America Will Abandon NATO by Anne Applebaum. I don't give a crap about NATO. 
Thus did former President Donald Trump once express his feelings about America's oldest and strongest military alliance. Not that this statement, made in the presence of John Bolton, the national security advisor at the time, came as a surprise. Long before he was a political candidate, Trump questioned the value of American alliances. Of the Europeans, he once wrote, their conflicts are not worth American lives. Pulling back from Europe would save this country millions of dollars annually. NATO, founded in 1949 and supported for three-quarters of a century by Democrats, Republicans, and independents alike, has long been a particular focus of Trump's ire. As president, Trump threatened to withdraw from NATO many times, including infamously at the 2018 NATO summit. But during Trump's time in office, the withdrawal never happened. That was because someone was always there to talk him out of it. Bolton says he did. Jim Mattis, John Kelly, Rex Tillerson, Mike Pompey, and even Mike Pence are thought to have done so, too. But they didn't change his mind. And if Trump is reelected in 2024, none of these people will be in the White House. All of them have broken with the former president, in some cases dramatically, and there isn't another pool of Republican analysts who understand Russia and Europe because most of them either signed statements opposing him in 2016 or criticized him after 2020. In a second term, Trump will be surrounded by people who either share his dislike of American security alliances or don't know anything about them and don't care. This time, the ill will that Trump has always felt toward American allies would likely manifest itself in a clear policy change. The damage he did in his first term was repairable, Bolton told me. The damage in the second term would be irreparable. Institutionally, and maybe even politically, leaving NATO could be difficult for Trump. As soon as he announced his intentions, a constitutional crisis would ensue. Senate approval is required for U.S. treaties, but the Constitution says nothing about congressional approval for withdrawal from treaties. Recognizing this gap in the law, Democratic Senator Tim Kaine and the Republican Senator Marco Rubio introduced legislation, which has already passed the Senate, designed to block any U.S. president from withdrawing from NATO without two-thirds Senate approval or an act of Congress. Kane told me he feels confident that the courts would uphold us on that and would not allow a president to unilaterally withdraw. But there would certainly be a struggle. A public relations crisis would unfold, too. A wide range of people, former Supreme Allied commanders, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, former presidents, foreign heads of state, will surely rally to make the case for NATO, and very loudly. But none of that would necessarily matter, because long before Congress convenes to discuss the treaty, the damage will have been done. That's because NATO's most important source of influence is not legal or institutional, but psychological. It creates an expectation of collective defense that exists in the mind of anyone who would threaten a member of the alliance. If the Soviet Union never attacked West Germany between 1949 and 1989, that was not because it feared a German response. If Russia had not attacked Poland, the Baltic states, or Romania over the past 18 months, that's not because Russia fears Poland, the Baltic states, or Romania. 
the Soviet Union held back, and Russia continues to do so now because of their firm belief in the American commitment to the defense of those countries. This deterrent effect doesn't come just from the NATO Treaty, a bare-bones document whose signatures simply agree in Article 5 that an armed attack against one or more of them in Europe or North America shall be considered an attack against them all. Deterrence comes from the Kremlin's conviction that Americans really believe in collective defense, that the U.S. military really is prepared for collective defense, and that the U.S. president really is committed to act if collective security is challenged. Trump could end that conviction with a single speech, a single comment, even a single truth social post. And it won't matter if Congress, the media, and the Republican Party are still arguing about the legality of withdrawing from NATO. Once the commander-in-chief says, I will not come to an ally's aid if attacked, why would anyone fear NATO, regardless of what obligations still exist on paper? And once the Russians, or anyone else, no longer fear a U.S. response to an attack, then the chances that they will carry one out grow higher. If such a scenario seems unlikely, it shouldn't. Before February 2022, many refused to believe that there could ever be a full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. When I asked several people with deep links in NATO to NATO to imagine what would happen to Europe, to Ukraine, and even to Taiwan and South Korea if Trump declared his refusal to observe Article 5, all of them agreed that faith in collective defense could evaporate quickly. Alexander Vershbo, a former U.S. ambassador to NATO and a former deputy secretary general of NATO, pointed out that Trump could pull the American ambassador from his post, prevent diplomats from attending meetings, or stop contributing to the cost of the Brussels headquarters, all before Congress was able to block him. He wouldn't be in any way legally restrained from doing that. Closing American bases in Europe and transferring thousands of soldiers would take longer, of course, but all of the political bodies in the alliance would nevertheless have to change the way they operate overnight. James Goldgeier, an international relations professor at American University and the author of several books on NATO, thinks the result would be chaotic. It's not like you can say, okay, now we have another plan for how to deal with this, he told me. There is no alternative leadership available, no alternative source of command and control systems, no alternative space weapons, not even an alternative supply of ammunition. Europe would immediately be exposed to a possible Russian attack for which it is not prepared and for which it would not be prepared for many years. Without NATO and without an American commitment to European security, supplies for Ukraine would also dry up. The prospect of American leaving NATO would force many European countries to keep their military resources at home. After all, they might soon face invasion as well. The Ukrainians would begin to run out of ammunition quite quickly. The Russian conquest of all of Ukraine still President Vladimir Putin's goal, would become thinkable once again. Ukrainian military logistics would become much harder because the Russians could bomb airports and other supply hubs in Poland and Romania. They have already come very close. 
At least one Russian missile accidentally struck Poland, and Russian strikes have hit the Romanian-Ukrainian border. Early in the war, the Russians deliberately attacked a base in western Ukraine, very near the Polish border, where foreign soldiers were known to be training. If the Russians begin to target bases inside Poland as well, the logistics of arming Ukraine become impossible. This change would immediately reverberate beyond Europe. Once Trump has made clear that he no longer supports NATO, all of America's other security alliances would be in jeopardy as well. Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, and even Israel would figure that they can no longer count on automatic American support. The end of NATO might not affect them directly, but its demise would signal that everyone, everywhere, has to assume the United States is no longer a reliable ally. Over time, all of America's allies would begin to hedge. Many European countries would cozy up to Russia. Many Asian countries would calculate that, as Kane puts it, I guess we need to get closer to China just as a matter of self-preservation. To avoid invasion, pragmatic leaders near China or Russia might begin to take more seriously the commercial and political demands from the world's second and third largest military powers, respectively. At the same time, many political parties and heads of state, both in and out of power, backed by Russia and China, or Iran, Venezuela, Cuba, would have a compelling new argument in favor of autocratic methods and tactics. America, a country whose image has already been severely damaged by Trump and Trumpism, would be seen to be retreating. Over time, American economic influence would decline, too. Trade agreements and financial arrangements would change, which would have an impact on American companies and eventually the U.S. economy. If Trump is reelected, Americans will be so consumed by the drama of their own failing institutions that, for a long while, most won't note the problems caused by the shifting international order. Lithuania and South Korea's troubles would seem distant, irrelevant. The end of American influence probably unfold in relative obscurity. By the time people here realize how much has changed, it will be too Anne Applebaum is a staff writer at The Atlantic. She is the author, most recently, of Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. Also from the January-February issue under Culture and Critics and Books, we have The Demise of the IBM Way. The company's peculiar culture fueled its success and eventually its fall from industry dominance. By Deborah Cohen. IBM is one of the oldest technology companies in the world, with a raft of innovations to its credit, including mainframe computing, computer programming languages, and AI-powered tools. But ask an ordinary person under the age of 40 what exactly IBM does or did, and the response will be vague at best. Something to do with computers, right, was the best the Gen Zers I queried could come up with. If a millennial knows anything about IBM, it's Watson's, the company's prototype AI system that prevailed on Jeopardy in 2011. In the chronicles of garage entrepreneurship, however, IBM remains, retains a legendary place as a flat-footed behemoth 
1980, bruised by nearly 13 years of antitrust litigation, its executives made the colossal error of permitting the 25-year-old Bill Gates, a co-founder of a company with several dozen employees, to retain the rights to the operating system that IBM had subcontracted with him to develop for its then-secret personal computer project. That mistake was the making of Microsoft. By January 1993, Gates's company was valued at $27 billion, briefly taking the lead over IBM, which that year posted some of the largest losses in American corporate history. But the greatest capitalist who ever lived, a briskly told biography of Thomas J. Watson, Jr., IBM's mid-20th century CEO, makes clear that the history of the company offers much more than an object lesson about complacent Goliaths. As the book's co-authors, Watson's grandson, Ralph Watson McIlvaney, and Mark Wartman emphasize, IBM was remarkably prescient in making the leap from mechanical to electronic technologies, helping usher in the digital age. Among large corporations, it was unusually entrepreneurial, focused on new frontiers. Its anachronisms were striking, too. Decades after most big American firms had embraced control by professional salaried managers, IBM remained a family-run company, fueled by loyalty as well as plenty of tension. What family isn't? Its bosses were frequently at odds. Meanwhile, it served its customers with fanatical attentiveness and, starting in the Depression, promised its workers lifetime employment. Have respect for the individual was IBM's creed. Today, as we hurtle toward a future in which AI threatens to obliterate the individual both as employee and creator, much of the IBM story reads like a tale from a faraway world. The company's technological accomplishments are still recognizable as the forerunners of the digital era, yet its culture of social responsibility, a focus on employees rather than shareholders, restraint in executive compensation, and investment in anti-poverty programs proved a dead end. A mashup of progressivism and paternalism, communalism and cutthroat competition, the once ballyhooed IBM way was, for better and worse, inextricably intertwined with the family at the top. For most of its history, and especially from the First World War through the 1970s, IBM's business was making business run more efficiently. During the late 19th century, the development of railways, the telegraph, and electricity created the conditions for a significant expansion in the scale and scope of American firms. As companies produced and distributed goods to middlemen and consumers, they had to deal with ever more complex logistics. Firms required new ways of tabulating, storing, and recalling information. Even the typewriter patented in 1868, the cash register 1883, and the adding machine 1888. At the apex of this information machine ecosystem was the firm National Cash Register, which was where Thomas J. Watson Sr., born in 1874 and raised on a farm near Painted Post, New York, served a 17-year apprenticeship. At NCR, Watson found his calling as a salesman. 
at the behest of NCR's dictatorial boss. He also ran a shady scheme to undersell secondhand cash register vendors to drive them out of the market. He was indicted for restraint of trade and then, deepening the humiliation, forced out at NCR. By the time Watson landed on his feet as the new general manager of the New York-based Computing Tabulating Recording Company in 1914, he was 40 years old and newly married with an infant son, Tom Jr. Watson soon renamed the company International Business Machines Corporation, a much more fitting description of his global ambitions. IBM's embrace of punch card technology, the -the state-of-the-art method for aggregating information, was his doing. So was the creation of an evangelical company culture, equal parts moral uplift, corporate paternalism, and personality cult. Inscribed on the walls in the company were Watson's favorite slogans. A company is known by the men it keeps. Spend a little time making customers happy. And think a dictum that to Watson, as the business historian Richard S. Tedlow has observed, likely meant, think like me. If these injunctions call to mind, don't be evil, Google's former mantra, or do the right thing, the current alphabet slogan, those are the hollow echoes of what was at IBM's an all-encompassing credo, anchored by the promise of a permanent job. Attached to IBM plants were IBM country clubs, which served dinner three nights a week. When Watson and his wife traveled to visit IBM offices in other cities, they attended meticulously planned employee family dinners. IBM men were clean-shaven and wore the regimental attire. Dark suits, starched white shirts, and ties. Alcohol was forbidden at company events. With the optimism of a true believer, Watson Sr., boldly expanded the business during the Great Depression, stockpiling tabulators, adding to the sales force, introducing the lifetime employment guarantee. A Democrat and unusual for a corporate executive, a supporter of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, he was perfectly placed to furnish the machines necessary to implement the Social Security Act when it passed in 1935. By the late 1930s, IBM was the dominant player in data processing. Young Tom had a front-row seat to both his father's formidable ambitions and his vanities, including his 20,000-plus square foot mansion in Manhattan and the appreciative letters from FDR he carried in his pocket. But even by the free and easy standards applied to well-heeled young men of the time, he was an underachiever. He got into mischief and flunked his classes. He spent weeks in bed suffering from bouts of depression. Despite his father's money, Princeton refused to admit him. The director of admissions told Watson Sr. that his son was a predetermined failure. Indeed, without the Second World War, what would Tom Watson Jr. have been? A flying enthusiast in May 1940, he joined the Army National Guard. Major General Follett Bradley, the commander of the 1st Air Force, made him his personal pilot. During the war, Watson kept a diary for the first time, as if at age 28 his life was just beginning. After the war, he returned to IBM at Bradley's suggestion. His father was pleased. As Watson Sr. liked to say, nepotism was good for business. 
In a company run like a family, he encouraged the employment of fathers and sons and expected that his own sons, Tom and his younger brother, Dick, would one day head IBM. But Tom was stifled by his father's rule, disgusted by the sycophants he thought his style of management encouraged. Their fights were frequent, titanic, and brazen, and often conducted in plain view of IBM employees. G.D., you old man, can't you ever leave me alone? They agreed on IBM's guaranteed lifetime employment, the importance of customer service, the need for a CEO to have an open-door policy, and the danger of complacency. Like his father, Tom Watson Jr. was a political liberal. He refused to permit racial segregation in IBM's southern plants and opposed Senator Joseph McCarthy's witch hunts. But they disagreed about nearly everything else, not least the direction of IBM's core business. Watson Sr. forbade the term computer, worrying that it would antagonize people who feared that these novel machines would replace workers. Curious as he was about the new thinking machines, he didn't see the point of electronic speed, figuring that few companies would need it. They certainly weren't business equipment. Tom, by contrast, was beginning to grasp their significance. By the early 1950s, the father, now in his 70s, started to withdraw from day-to-day management, naming his older son as president of IBM in 1952. Watson Sr. had cultivated a patriarchal style with 38 managers reporting directly to him. His son introduced an IBM organization chart, and the company's managers started to take down the photograph of Watson Sr. that had once decorated every sale branch's showroom. More important, he moved IBM decisively into computers. In 1952, the company opened a campus in San Jose, Silicon Valley's first computer factory and corporate research facility. The company's growth was extraordinary, and so was Watson Jr.'s risk-taking. In the early 1960s, he made a bet the company gamble on the decision to produce a fully compatible line of computers, the System 360. At that point, IBM was producing seven entirely separate systems with different levels of computing power. Each had a distinct internal architecture, so migrating data from one computer line to another was often impossible. Clients that wanted to upgrade their computers would effectively have to start from scratch. And IBM itself was saddled with inefficiencies in production, including 2,500 distinct types of circuit boards. The System 360 has been described as one of the greatest product innovations in 20th century American history, next to the Ford Model T. Achieving compatibility across a wide array of processors was an engineering nightmare, requiring millions and millions of lines of code. IBM's investment was equivalent to $50 billion today, more than twice the cost of the Manhattan Project. The new computer made every one of the company's other lines obsolete, meaning that if the System 360 didn't work as anticipated, IBM stood to lose its clientele to other firms. When the System 360 line finally shipped after many reversals, including problems in both the engineering and manufacture, it proved an instant success. 
From 1964 to 1970, IBM added almost 120,000 new employees for a total workforce of 269,000, and its revenues more than doubled, from $3.2 billion to $7.5 billion, unprecedented growth for a major corporation. Saying, let's not be piggish, Watson Jr. had stopped taking his stock options worth five times his annual salary in 1958. As the economist Theodore Levitt famously argued in 1960, businesses that bank on particular products, even very successful ones, are courting obsolescence. Hollywood's moguls failed to see that their business wasn't movies, but entertainment. They let television, the great opportunity of the era, slip from their grasp. Watson Sr. thought he was in the tabulator and punch card business. Watson Jr. understood that IBM's actual business was information. Why IBM made the shift from mechanical to electronic modes of data processing has presented something of a puzzle for scholars. The leap into the unknown, as James W. Cortada deftly explains in his recent history of the company, IBM, the rise and fall and reinvention of a global icon, owed much to the ways in which this Cold War with the Soviet Union, and especially the Korean War, supercharged the federal funding available to private R&D efforts. The company's engineers, too, played a key role, initially in pressuring management to see the promise of the new technology, then in transforming complex computing systems into commercially viable products. IBM's customers began to demand the new machines. Still, it could easily have been otherwise. Despite a technological head start in computers, Remington Rand, IBM's major competitor in the tabulator industry, chose to focus on electric razors, typewriters, and office equipment. The greatest capitalist who ever lived, as is inevitably the case with biographies, put the emphasis on individuals, Thomas Watson Jr. specifically, as well as the IBM executives who at various points served as his consigliere, soothsayers, and foes. As Watson Jr.'s grandson, McIlvenny offers an insider's assessment of familial dynamics drawn from interviews and private papers. Most notable, the authors go further than most scholars have in portraying the son's embrace of computers as a repudiation of his father. The resentment, they explain, was mutual. When Watson Jr. appeared on the cover of Time magazine in 1955, a marketing triumph for the company, the old man didn't say a word. The rivalry between them continued to spur Watson Jr. on, even after his father died the next year. In a sense, Watson Jr. was founding a new company when he took over IBM, and the need to prove himself meant that he ran the firm like an entrepreneur rather than an heir. Instead of surrounding himself with yes-men, he preferred, he wrote, sharp, scratchy, harsh, almost unpleasant guys who could see and tell me about things as they really were. He established a system of contention management that required executives and their subordinates to fight out disagreements in front of the corporate management committee. The guarantee of lifetime employment was supposed to encourage responsible risk-taking and make the inherent friction within the hierarchy productive for the company. As Richard Tedlow has observed, Watson Jr. wanted the dynamic he had with his father to metastasize throughout IBM. 
As profitable as this edible conflict may have been for IBM's bottom line, it was near disastrous for the Watsons. In McIlvaney and Wortman's apt description, they were the Kennedys of the corporate world, complete with yacht racing, extramarital affairs, ski weekends with the actual Kennedys, and psychological breakdowns. The story of the System 360 was also the undoing of Dick, Tom Watson's younger brother. Dick Watson was a much less rebellious character than Tom. He'd even permitted his father to accompany him and his bride on their honeymoon. As young men, the brothers had been close, and Dick was able to cajole a depressed Tom out of bed when no one else could. Dick had been running IBM's worldwide operations very successfully. Tom wanted his brother to follow him as CEO. But Tom's decision to put Dick in charge of the manufacturing and engineering of the System 360 and to task his rival for the CEO position, T. Vincent Learson, was selling the line, backfired badly. As production delays mounted, Dick stopped coming to work. Rumor had it that he was drinking too much. The brothers barely talked to each other, and after Tom effectively fired Dick, the estrangement was complete. In 1870, at age 56, Tom had a major heart attack and soon resigned as CEO. He formally retired from IBM in 1974. Later that year, Dick died at 55 from a fall down the stairs at home. Tom Watson Jr. was in the Soviet Union serving as President Jimmy Carter's ambassador there when IBM's executive made the disastrous deal with Bill Gates. Watson wrote an unusually frank memoir, Father, Son, and Company, which in 1990 spent 14 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. By that time, IBM, my company, he still called it, was a wounded giant. Overinvested in the mainframe business during the 1980s, Watson's successors failed to capitalize on the PC and its software, forfeiting a huge consumer market. As IBM's fortunes sank in the early 90s, Watson Jr. would wake up crying at night. He died in 1993 after a stroke. Lou Gerstner, the executive who took on the job of rescuing IBM that same year, was respectful about the Watsons' leadership. But in his own memoir, he left no doubt about the damage their six-decade reign had caused. The contention management system had failed. The bad feeling it created led to a habitual avoidance of conflict rather than a frank airing of alternatives. The lifetime guarantee of employment had ossified into an entitlement, and Gerstner insisted on its formal end. Nearly two years into Gerstner's tenure at IBM, nearly half of the employees who had been on the company's payroll in 1987 were gone. The old Watsonian culture barely survived as a memory. IBM had been sued multiple times in the past decade for firing workers over the age of 40. The company has said that it never engaged in systemic age discrimination. Maybe humans won't matter much longer anyway. Last spring, IBM debuted its new AI product, Watson X, which has been lauded as the company's most valuable innovation in years. It can streamline HR operations, provide tennis commentary at Wimbledon, and much more, a creation with the potential to accelerate automation in unprecedented ways. 
Watson Sr. had always been more concerned than his son about the possibility that machines could take the place of humans. At the same time, in his mind, IBM had never been merely a company. IBM, he once proclaimed, is not merely an organization of men. It is an institution that will go on forever. Preserving its soul, in his view, was crucial. That relinquishing its humanity might in fact turn out to be the secret to eternal life would surely have stunned both father and son. Deborah Cohen is the Richard W. Leopold Professor of History at Northwestern University. She is the author of Last Call at the Hotel Imperial, The Reporters Who Took on a World at War. Another article from the If Trump Wins series is Women Will Be Targets by Sophie Gilbert. Strange as this might be to say of the only American president found legally liable for sexual abuse, the only leader of the free world accused of dangling a TV gig in front of a porn performer seemingly as an enticement for sex, the only commander-in-chief to publicly denigrate the sexual attractiveness of both Heidi Klum, no longer a 10, and Angelina Jolie, not a great beauty, I don't believe Donald Trump hates women. Not by default, anyway. When it comes to the women who are not only dutifully but lovingly catering to his desires, the philosopher Kate Mann wrote in her 2017 book, Down Girl, What's to Hate? The misogyny that Trump embodies and champions is less about loathing than enforcement, underscoring his requirement that women look and behave a certain way, that we comply with his desires and submit to our required social function. The more than 25 women who have accused Trump of sexual assault or misconduct, which he has denied, and the countless more who've endured public vitriol and threats to their life after being targeted by him, have all been punished either for challenging him or for denying him what he fundamentally believed was his due. At the micro level, Trump's misogyny can almost be comical in an absurdist sort of way, like the time in 1994 when he fretted over whether his new infant daughter would inherit her mother's breast, or when he tweeted in to share in 2012, I promise not to talk about your massive plastic surgeries that didn't work. On a larger scale, the legislative and cultural shifts he fostered during his four years in the White House are so drastic that they're hard to fully parse. Until 2022, women and pregnant people had the constitutional right to an abortion. Now, thanks to Trump's remade Supreme Court, abortion is unavailable or effectively banned in about a third of the states. The MAGA Republican Party is ever more of a boys' club. All 14 representatives who announced bids to become House Speaker after the ouster of Kevin McCarthy were men. The victor, Mike Johnson, has blamed Roe versus Wade in the past for depriving the country of able-bodied workers to prop off the American economy. Online and off, old-fashioned sextists and trollish provocateurs alike have been emboldened by Trump's ability to say grotesque things without consequences. Trump's glee in smacking down women has filtered into every aspect of our culture. If, as the literary critic Lionel Trilling wrote, ideology is not acquired by thought but by breathing the haunted air, then Trump has helped radicalize swaths of a generation essentially through poisonous fumes. 
He didn't create the manosphere, the fetid corner of the Internet devoted to sending women back to the Stone Age, but he elevated some of its most noxious voices into the mainstream and vindicated their worst prejudices. I'm in a state of exuberance that we now have a president who rates women on a 1 through 10 scale in the same way that we do, wrote the former self-described pickup artist Roosh V on his website shortly after the election. By now, misogyny has bled into virtually every part of the Internet. TikTok clips featuring Andrew Tate, the misogynist influencer and accused rapist and human trafficker who has said that women should bear some personal responsibility for their sexual assaults and frequently derides women as hoes, have been viewed billions of times. Tate has denied the charges against him. In 2021, before Elon Musk bought Twitter and oversaw a spike in misogynist misogynistic and abusive content, not to mention reinstating the accounts of both Trump and Tate, the Tesla entrepreneur and men's rights icon tweeted that he was going to inaugurate a new college called the Texas Institute of Technology and Silence, TITS. Boys on social media are being inundated with messaging that the only qualities worth prizing in women are sexual desirability and submission, a worldview that aligns perfectly with Trump's. Misogyny, as my colleague Franklin Four wrote in Slate in 2016, is the one ideology Trump has never changed, his one unwavering credo. Seeking to dominate others with his supposed sexual prowess and loudly professing disgust at women he doesn't desire has been his modus operandi for decades. Any woman who challenges him is a big, fat pig, a dog, a horse face. What would four more years of Trump mean for women? It's hard to conclude that Trump was moderated by the presence of his daughter in the West Wing exactly, or for that matter, by any of the advisors who thought they could temper his worst instincts before they ended up fleeing in droves. But what's most chilling about a possible second Trump presidency is that he would certainly now be unchecked. The advisors who remain are the ones who bolster his darker impulses. It was Trump's advisor, Jason Miller, Axios, as Mike Allen reported, who psyched him up between segments of his 2023 CNN town hall as he became more and more aggressive toward the moderator, Caitlin Collins. Are you ready? Can I talk? Do you mind? Trump jeered at her. Anybody who's ever witnessed an abusive relationship could instantly recognize the tone. Sophie Gilbert is a staff writer at The Atlantic. She was a finalist for the 2022 Pulitzer Prize in Criticism and is the author of On Womanhood, Bodies, Literature, Choice. Well, that's all the time we have for today. This has been Susan with The Atlantic. I hope you've enjoyed today's reading from the audio reading service at the Allen County Public Library in Fort Wayne, Indiana. <music>